Amen. A couple of weeks ago, while Nancy and I were on vacation with most of her family, all of our family, and to do a wedding, I knew that I was going to be preaching on this petition today, the one that says, and lead us not into temptation. And so among some of the family members and a few others, I just took a poll. And the poll question is really the title of today's message. Does God lead his children into temptation? I thought I would just get a solid core of evidence to support probably the right answer. Interestingly enough, I got about three different answers. Yes, no, maybe. <laughs> and in fact, uh, about a week ago, I put out on the church Facebook site that the upcoming message was, Does God lead his children into temptation? And immediately, I got an email back that said, Absolutely not! <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then I got one that says, I think it all depends. <laughs> okay. So where else could I look? Well, I'll get around to that, but I, I did decide to look at some Bible commentaries. And a quick survey of Bible commentaries reveals that there's a tremendous amount of disagreement about the answer to the question, does God lead his children into temptation? At one point, I had 14 different windows open on my laptop trying to mesh them together, and while I did not find 14 different answers, I did find about three or four views that seemed to come through fairly strong. But none of them really came out to answer again that central question, does God lead his children into temptation? After all, isn't that what we pray? And lead us not into temptation. Here's my answer. It all depends. Well, it all depends on what? It all depends on how you define the word temptation. Somebody actually caught that one. Somebody from this church, I won't mention their name, but in their replies, I think it all depends on how you define your terminology. I say that because the Greek word for temptation has two different meanings. By itself, it's a rather neutral term. It can mean anything positive. It can also mean anything negative. In its positive meaning, generally it's translated using words like trial or testing. In those cases, it refers to a difficult circumstance or a situation that God has kind of led you to in order to improve the quality of your faith and your trust in him. Now, in its negative meaning, same Greek word, it generally refers to what in English we would say is to seduce or lure or solicit or entice to do something evil. So we've got one word that has two different meanings. It can either mean a trial or it can mean a solicitation to do evil. Now, so your answer to the question, does God lead his children into temptation, is going to be radically affected according to which one of those meanings you think is predominant here in Matthew 6 when it says, and lead us not into temptation. Now, to make matters even worse, if you will, more complicated, 
this word, this Greek word that has two definitions, positive and negative, is often used in the same passages of Scripture, indiscriminately. For example, James chapter 1, verse 2, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, when you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. But in the original Greek, there's that one word. Skip down, 13, down to verse 13, it says, When you are tempted to do evil... No one should say God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Here the word is used again, the same word used in verse 2, used in verse 13. The first in a positive sense, the second in a negative sense. So what are you going to do with that? Does God lead his people into temptation? And is that why he asks us to pray, Lord, deliver us from temptation? Is it possible to use the same word with two different meanings without any contradiction? Particularly it's written by the same writer, same book, same chapter. I'm going to tell you, yeah, probably. The writer of the book of James assumed that his readers knew the difference between this Greek word that means trial and this word over here that means temptation, the bad stuff. Now, there is one very crucial point that we need to kind of put in the back of our minds this morning. It's this. God will never, ever tempt you to do that which is wrong. Now, you might find yourself in tough situations, tough circumstances from time to time, and you may actually choose to do evil. But let's remember, it's you who chose to do evil. It is not God doing the choosing. God never, ever sets you up to fail if he did, guess what? That would contradict his love. That would contradict his holiness. That would contradict everything you know and believe about him. So if the question is, does God lead his children into temptation in the sense of directly and personally seducing them to do wrong, the answer to that question is absolutely, positively not. No. God does not lead us or try to seduce us into sinning. But I've also said that that same word has to do with trial and test, the testing. And that's really the primary meaning here in Matthew 6.13. But notice I said it's the primary meaning. Because it, but it's not the exclusive meaning. The negative meaning may also be present in this petition to some degree. The key is this double meaning again of this word, this Greek word translated temptation. Now they may seem like polar opposites to us, but they're really, those two words are also not very far apart, which is probably why the Bible readers could use that same word with two different meanings so close together. Now here's a statement for us to understand today. I'm going to repeat it a couple times because it's key that you understand this. What God gives to us as a trial or a test is almost always used by Satan as a temptation. Now let me say that again, the key that you hang on to that. What God gives to us as a trial or a test is almost always used by Satan as a temptation. God is trying to use it for one reason in your life, and Satan at the same time is trying to work to accomplish something that's quite the opposite. God is allowing this trial or this testing to come into your life 
for a positive purpose. Satan, meanwhile, is co-opting that purpose and trying to turn it into something wicked and nasty. Let me give you an example from the scripture, lest you think I'm just making this up. Because I can prove this from the Bible, which is where you ought to get your proof from anyway. Go back to the temptation of Jesus. Uh, most of you know that story, the temptation of Jesus, a very clear example. We know that the devil came to Jesus on three different occasions in the wilderness, tempting Jesus to turn away from that path of obedience to his father. Listen to this verse. If you've got your Bible, it's Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Did you get that? Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Who did the leading? The Spirit. Who did the tempting? The devil. Is there a contradiction here? No. Did God know what was going to happen when he sent his son into the desert? Yes, he did. He intended from the beginning to demonstrate that his son would not yield to Satan's smooth talk. Was God tempting his own son? No, he wasn't. Was God putting his son in a place where he could be tempted by the devil? Of course, yes, he did. You know, that's kind of an amazing thought when you stop and think about it. In fact, somebody told me, man, I never realized there was so much in just a few words in the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to be honest with you, until I really got to studying the Lord's Prayer even deeper and deeper than I ever did before, there's a whole lot more in these little phrases than you would imagine. Lead us not into temptation. Wow, mean two different words for that? It's an amazing thought. And we need to kind of approach this petition very clearly and very thoughtfully. Now, I do not believe that God ever, ever solicits his children to sin because the Bible specifically tells us he doesn't. But it's also true that from time to time, God allows his children to go into places where they will have severe temptations by Satan. Now, is God responsible for that temptation? No, he's not. He does the leading. Satan is the one who's doing the tempting. From God's point of view, it's a test or a trial. From Satan's point of view, it's an invitation to sin. Let me give you, give you an example. Let's take the case of a businessman who's out on the road traveling. Let's say he's on about the seventh day of his business trip. He checks into his hotel room, and on the top of his television, there's this little box where you can order special movies. And these are special movies that start with the letter X. Single X, double X, triple X, I mean, whatever form of pornography you want. Now, the businessman knows that he has no business to push that button or turn to that channel, but he's alone. He's probably feeling a little lonely. He may be a little bit spiritually disoriented at that time. And so he feels this strong urge to watch one of these pornographic movies. Does God know that box is there? Yes, he does. Did God allow his servant to go into that room? Yes, he did. Is it a test? Yes, it is. And if the man passes the test, what? He will become spiritually stronger because he said no. Is it a temptation? 
Yes, it is. It's a temptation to reach out, touch that box, turn to that channel, and give in to Satan's temptation. Now, that's just one example. We give you all kinds of examples of how something God intends to be a trial or a test for the purpose of building up your faith can also become a temptation to pull you down. I mean, I thought of all kinds of examples. Losing your job. Could that be a trial or a test to strengthen your faith? Could be. But could Satan use it as a temptation for you to turn your back on God? You betcha. How about getting a new job that makes more money? Could that be a trial or a test? Could be. Could it be a temptation? Could be. There's two conclusions I would draw from this. Here's conclusion number one. Trials and tests. Trials and tests are a normal part of the Christian life. They are, if you will, part of God's curriculum for your life. He puts difficult choices in front of you all day long so that by following him and trusting in him in those circumstances, what happens? You become stronger. Your faith becomes confirmed, and you literally become an example of the victorious Christian life. But you are always going to be where the devil is, the world is, and where your own sinful flesh is. There is absolutely no way to escape these trials. I remember something Martin Luther once wrote. It sounded kind of funny when I read it initially. He said... If it's the devil, the world, and our own sinful flesh. He said, let's just say for a moment that you actually could get your flesh into check. He said, but the next thing you know, you'd realize there's still the world out there. He said, but somehow, if you could get your body and the world in check, he said, the next thing you would hear would be this. And when you say, who is it? The answer would be, it's the devil. You're never going to get them in check, by the way. There's nothing you can do to escape the trials. In the school or the college of God's grace, I checked it out. Uh, God does not offer a no-trials degree program. Everybody's going to be tested many ways, many times, many places. Now, here's the second conclusion we can draw. A trial, a trial becomes a temptation when we respond to it wrongly. See, what God means for good, the strengthening of our faith, the devil means for evil. See, the Christian kind of hangs here in the balance between the tests and trials from the Father and the perversions of Satan as he twists around whatever God wants them to think about or do. He keeps whispering in our ears, go ahead, God didn't mean this, go ahead, try it, it'll be fun. Now, could this be the reason why the Bible writers did not seem to sharply distinguish between what we want to keep separate. See, we separate trials and temptations as if they are far, far apart. But I think the Bible writers had no problem in using the same word to mean trial in one verse and in the next verse to use the word that means temptation. See, they understood something, I believe, that we have forgotten. And what we have forgotten is this, that everything good comes from whom? Comes from God. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. That's what the Bible says. And everything he gives us is ultimately for what? For the good. 
You know that for moments. And all things that God allows into your life will work together for good of those who love him according to the plan that he has for you. It's all there for his glory. But hidden inside of every little trial, hidden inside of every little temptation, every little trial is a seed of temptation that Satan uses to harvest a crop of evil in our lives. Now you say, man, that's pretty nasty stuff. I got some good news, though, for you. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, fortunately, fortunately, points us back to Jesus. Points us back to Jesus as somebody who can help us work this trial and temptation thing out. Because in Hebrews 4, 15, what does it say? It says, Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. If you have the old King James Version of the Bible, it says it a little bit different, and I kind of like it. It says that he is touched with the feelings of our infirmities. He's touched by the, heal- the feelings of our infirmities. Now, today, we walk around all the time. I, you know, Ted tells me, I say, oh, man, Ted, I feel your pain. That's kind of a cliche we toss out today. But uh, not in Jesus' case. Jesus is truly moved by our sorrow. Jesus is moved. He's aware of the tears. He's, he's touched by our failure. And I don't know about you, but I find it really, really good to know that Jesus was tempted exactly as I am. I mean, what a good thing that he was tempted exactly in every single way that you've ever been tempted. Now, think about this. What temptations would those be? The Bible says there are essentially just three different kinds of temptations. You know that? First John chapter 2. There's three categories. Uh, they're called the lust of the eyes the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Those are essentially, kind of in a nutshell. The wonderful thing is this, Jesus was tempted in every last single one of those categories, just like you are, but he defeated the devil each and every time. Where we failed, he succeeded. Where we gave in, he stood strong. Where we collapsed under pressure, Jesus obeyed his father. He was tempted, yet he never, ever sinned by giving in. Now, this has got some tremendous implications on our spiritual life. See, because Jesus was tempted and never gave in, we can be sure that he will never, ever be surprised by anything we ever say or do. When we pray, we don't have to worry that God is going to sit up there in heaven and go, You did what? You're not going to surprise him. God has seen it all. He has heard it all. We can go ahead and we can be open and brutally honest about our failures. He knows about it even before we tell him. I've been reading a book lately written by a Christian author whose name is Ron Dunn. And Ron Dunn talks about learning this lesson at the end of a very, very bad day, as he called it. He said, when I got up, I didn't spend much, I didn't spend any time praying. And as the day wore on, I was rude in every way that I treated people. It was a bad, mean, miserable day. And when the day finally ended, I knelt to pray and I began by saying, Lord, I made a mess of my life today 
and I confess I'm not worthy to come into your presence. He said, it's at that point that the Lord interrupted my prayer. And he said, I could almost hear him say out loud to me, Ron, do you think having a quiet time this morning would have made you worthy to talk to me this evening? Do you think doing good and treating people right now would have somehow made you qualified to come into the presence of God? If that's what you think, you don't know yourself, you don't know me, and you do not even begin to understand the grace of God. I really relate to that. I don't know about you. Because, but that's exactly how I think from time to time. It's so easy for all of us to think or believe that our good works, something good we do, will somehow commend us to God. You know, if we'll just be good, that God is more likely to hear our prayers than if we're bad. But to think that way is really to deny the gospel itself. We're accepted by God only on the basis of what Jesus has done. This is what Ron Don goes on to write. He says, How dare we wave the tattered rags of a quiet time and think that somehow that makes a difference in heaven? I'm all for having a quiet time and treating people right and totally on the side of living for the Lord, but all of that cannot add anything to our acceptance before God. Now, when I read that, the first thought that came to mind, I wrote it down, put a note in it, and actually put a, you put a note in your Kindle, I put a note down there, and my note that I put down was this, it's either all by grace or not at all. All by grace or not at all. Because Jesus knows how sinful every last one of us here is. We don't have to play games with him. We come to God just as we are, clinging to the cross. We claim nothing but the blood of Jesus. Our only hope is being accepted when we pray. A number of years ago, um, there was a rather well-known pastor who came through Chicago to speak at a conference I went to. And one of the messages that he delivered dealt with the need to depend wholly on the Lord and not on our own resources. And as he came to a close, he told us the story of King Jehoshaphat. And you can read this story in 2 Chronicles 20. But in this story, the Ammonites and the Moabites had gathered together. They formed this monstrously big army and were marching towards Jerusalem. And as they got closer and closer, the situation looked increasingly hopeless. And so the king, that's Jehoshaphat, called a nationwide time of fasting and prayer. Kind of like our own governor had the guts to do the other day. I mean, men from every town gathered together in Jerusalem to seek the Lord's face. Jehoshaphat stood in front of the people and he offered one of the greatest prayers that you can find in the Bible. We read this story, 2 Chronicles 20. He begins by declaring God's greatness. He said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hands, and no one can withstand you. Then, in his prayer, he goes on to remind God of all the promises that God had made to take care of his people. And then he ends up by telling God something in verse 12. He says, We have no power to face this vast army that is attacking us. And then he ends up his prayer by saying, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. 
Now, God's word to him came back through the voice of a prophet. And the voice didn't say, oh, go out there and enter into battle and you'll win. The voice of the Lord that the prophet brought said, go out, stand still, and see the salvation of the Lord. So the next day, Jehoshaphat assembled his army. He put the praise team out front. That ought to make some of you shiver. Put the choir out front and had the choir lead them into battle. They got to the edge of this hill, and there they stopped, and they stood still and watched the Lord send confusion into the armies of the enemies. The Moabites and the Ammonites started killing each other by mistake. There was a great slaughter, and they left behind hundreds of thousands of dead soldiers, and later they went out and they plundered everything that was left behind. And the story ends with the, uh, the army gathering for a praise celebration, giving thanks to God for the victory that he had won for them. And all they had to do was just stand there and watch. Now, I remember him telling that story. Then he commented that when Jehoshaphat prayed, we do not know what to do, but our eyes are, are upon you, he was really saying... Lord, we are just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if you don't help us, we're sunk. He went on to say that he had discovered that this probably was the true mission statement of the church he pastored. He said, our mission statement, we changed it. Our mission statement is we're just a bunch of pathetic losers. And if God doesn't help us, we're sunk. I remember afterwards saying, I think I'm going to go home and change the name of the church. How'd you, let's get rid of First Lutheran Church. I mean, nobody's going to, let's get rid of that. Let's have a congregation meeting. Let's change the name of this church to the Church of Pathetic Losers. The Church of Pathetic Losers. Guess what? You'd never run out of prospects here in Texarkana. You know, I, I think he was absolutely right. And apart from God's grace, that's all any of us are. We are just a bunch of pathetic losers. Without God, we don't stand a chance. We don't have a thing to offer. We don't even know what to do next. Now, I sometimes think that the hardest thing in my job as a pastor to do is to get people somehow to admit how desperately they really need him. You know, this fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer is really meant for pathetic losers. I mean, if you don't think this petition... Lead us not into temptation. Temptation doesn't really belong with you. It really does. You're a pathetic loser for even saying that. But you know something? It should not discourage us at all. Because God does his very best work with who? Pathetic losers. People who are willing to throw themselves wholeheartedly on the grace of God. At that same church, during the, at that same conference that day, when we had a lunch break, we were talking about that. And I say, I'm going to go back and change Lord of Life's name to, you know, the, uh, the, the uh, Church of Pathetic Losers. And he said, you know, I put something in my church bulletin that the leadership doesn't really like and wishes I would get rid of it. You know how we have here our mission statement, FLC3. He said, I put our mission statement blunder forward. <laughs> I like that. He said, 
on our very best day, that's all we do is blunder forward. But see, Jesus, friends, came to tell us how to live. I mean, he gave us the way out of all of this. He said, whoever wants to save his life, in other words, whoever wants to be delivered from this temptation, whoever wants to save his life is going to lose it, but whoever loves his life for me and the gospel will save it. See, in God's kingdom, everything is always upside down. In God's kingdom, all the values of the world are reversed. I mean, up is down. The last shall be first. The least will be the greatest. The servants will be the leaders. See, when we pray, lead us not into temptation, we are admitting that we have absolutely no clue how to face life's problems. How are you today? You know, a good answer would be, if I said, John, how are you today? The answer, good answer would be clueless. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about yourself, John. I'm a pathetic loser. <laughs> that would be true. How are you going to get out of that? I'm going to get it out, out of that purely through the grace and mercy of God, through the blood of Christ. See, the good news always in these petitions is that God delights, God delights, I don't know if we understand what that word means, God delights to help those who have nowhere else to go but to the Lord. Let's pray. Loving Lord, we truly believe that all things work together for good to those who love you. When we are tempted to sin, give us wisdom to choose the way of escape while we have the chance. May we not trifle or mess around with sin and so be brought down in shame and disgrace. Give us a strong desire to do the right things no matter what it costs. Help us to see your fingerprints even in the hard experiences of life. And may our trials make us more like Jesus each and every day. Amen.